This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. Due to the graphic nature of this secret society, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, sexuality, and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise caution for listeners under the age of 13. Cormac eyed the stranger across from him with suspicion. He'd been coming to Hellfire Club meetings at the Eagle Tavern for years, but had never seen this newcomer before. Yet he seemed friendly enough, and Cormac was always willing to take on a fresh face, especially one who dealt such good hands. His heart beat with excitement as he revealed his cards. Three aces. Yet another win. Cormac smiled, took a healthy drink from his pint of beer, and gathered his winnings. Unfortunately, Cormac's heavy drinking had left him uncoordinated. Some of the coins slid off the table and fell to the grimy floor below. As he hunted for the lost coins among the dirty shoes and sticky floorboards, he saw something that made his blood run cold. The stranger's legs terminated not in human feet, but in goat's hooves. Cormac rubbed his eyes in disbelief. Sure, he'd heard rumors that the Hellfire Club sometimes entertained the devil at their meetings, but he always assumed they were just that, rumors. And yet here he was, face to face with Lucifer himself. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on The Hellfire Club. The group began as a small social clique in Dublin, Ireland, eventually migrating to London in the 18th century, where it transformed into something much more nefarious. 
This week, we'll look at the founding and early history of the secret society. We'll explore how the Hellfire Club's members, called Devils, opposed the Catholic Church's authority and why their activities were linked to Satanism and human sacrifice. Next week, we'll examine how a devil's prank gone wrong destabilized England's parliament. We'll also explore how the Hellfire Club's influence persisted after it was disbanded and still shapes our society today. Throughout its many incarnations, the Hellfire Club was accused of consorting with the devil, committing ritual murders, and blaspheming the Christian faith. But when it comes to these allegations, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. In truth, the organization's founders likely spread intentionally false information about their arcane practices, just to increase their mystique and incur public ire. To understand why and to explore how the Hellfire Club became so influential, we have to take a look at the culture in which it was founded, the Era of Enlightenment. In the early 1700s, the Catholic Church dominated Europe, but social change was brewing. Protestantism was spreading, giving Christians alternatives to Catholicism. Scientific breakthroughs depicted a world that operated on reason and logic, not on divine providence. For the first time in centuries, people could seize power over their own lives rather than blindly submit to the Vatican. Around the turn of the 18th century, coffee houses began popping up throughout Europe. Today, college students or book clubs might meet at a Starbucks for a drink and to discuss ideas. Similarly, 300 years ago, young scientists and philosophers gathered over steaming black mugs of coffee to talk about their radical, secular notions. In order to ensure that church representatives couldn't enter the coffee houses and harass customers, the shop's owners and other leaders began testing the knowledge of any newcomers. If they couldn't pass, they couldn't attend. In essence, the first secret societies had formed. The secrecy began as a necessity, a tool for the world's most brilliant and wealthy innovators to meet and greet. But in predominantly Protestant nations like England, there was less of a need to hide from the Vatican's influence. Instead, belonging to a secret coffee club was trendy. Rather than providing a haven for intellectual debate, membership was proof of high social standing. Secrecy wasn't really an obligation, it was just part of the fun. These Protestant secret societies incorporated complicated signs and countersigns so members could identify each other. They threw parties with strange, mysterious rituals. They warped from a forum of learning into something arcane, mystical, and cryptic. Outsiders could only guess at their real purpose. So in the 1720s, when rumors began spreading about the Hellfire Club, not just a secret society, but a satanic organization that engaged in human sacrifice and ritual murder, the stories sounded all too probable to many who heard them. The club was founded in Dublin, Ireland by Philip, the Duke of Wharton, in 1718 or 1719. He was young, 20 or 21 years old. Neither a scientist nor a philosopher he nevertheless resented religion's influence over his own life. 
Like many other British lords, the Duke rejected papal authority. He frequently sought opportunities to openly demonstrate his disdain for the church. This seems to have been his primary motivation when he founded the Hellfire Club. The name was meant to be intentionally provocative, an announcement that any members were likely to be condemned to hell. And their meetings were a celebration of sin. At club gatherings, beer and wine flowed freely. Men and women interacted as equals. They gambled on Sundays, read banned books, and frequented taverns late into the night. These all might seem like fairly mild rebellions, but in the 18th century, they were downright deplorable. Due to the society's secretive nature, we don't know much about the Dublin Hellfire Club's formal setup. No records survive of how often they met or what exactly went on behind closed doors when they gathered at the Eagle Tavern. Of course, their stealth only fueled speculation throughout Dublin. Stories suggested that the Hellfire Club members, called devils, were worshipping demons or blaspheming God. Rumors spread about mysterious figures in black cloaks slinking through presumably haunted forests late at night. Perhaps these were the devils or Satan's minions cavorting with them. One oft-repeated story featured a card game turned fatal. One night at the Eagle Tavern, a gambler realized he was playing against the devil himself. According to legend, the gambler noticed that his opponent had cloven goat's legs. The sight was so shocking, he fell dead on the spot. With only rumors to rely on, nobody was entirely certain what the secret society was up to, but their activities were allegedly so unholy they drive an ordinary person mad. This was best illustrated in the legend of a Dublin-area farmer who was so curious about what really went on at Hellfire Club meetings, he decided to spy on the group. While they gathered at the Eagle Tavern, he walked around the exterior, hoping to overhear something or catch a glimpse through a window. The farmer had only been circling for a short while before someone spotted him, and they knew he didn't belong there. So they sounded an alarm to the other devils. By investigating their secret and sacred practices, the farmer had wronged the devils. So they devised a truly ironic punishment. If the farmer wanted to know what the Hellfire Club was up to that badly, they'd show him. The members grabbed the farmer and dragged him inside. The legends don't say what he witnessed at the Eagle Tavern that night, but whatever it was, it left permanent psychological scars. He was found the next morning, wandering mindlessly over a nearby hillside. He couldn't explain what had happened the night before. In fact, he never spoke another word for the rest of his life. Like many of the stories swirling around the Hellfire Club, this one probably has little basis in truth. So while there's no reason to think that the Hellfire Club really engaged in any kind of supernatural craft, we do know that the rumors shaped their growth and their relationships with other secret societies. 
The original chapter met at the Eagle Tavern, which was also headquarters for Dublin's chapters of the Freemasons, the Hanover Club, and the Ogrim Club. Some of these organizations didn't like having the devils on their turf. According to researcher David Ryan, in 1739, unknown enemies of the Hellfire Club pranked one of their meetings. The outsiders dropped a whole goose down a chimney where it landed in a lit fire. The resulting smoky mess was enough for all of the devils to run outside, their agenda forgotten. The club's founder, Philip of Wharton, didn't see these antics as intimidating. He found them admirable. In 1722, three or four years after the Hellfire Club was founded, he joined the Freemasons. Within a matter of months, he attained the rank of Grand Master. Philip was so busy with his Masonic duties, he allowed the Hellfire Club to fall by the wayside. Without his stewardship, the group eventually disbanded. But this wasn't the end of the Devils. The timeline is a little hazy, but around the same time that Philip left, sister branches of the Hellfire Club sprang up throughout Ireland. It's hard to say exactly who established these other branches or how they related to the original Dublin location. It's likely that these new Hellfire Clubs were copycat groups, and their members knew little of the original organization's practices. That meant that these new Hellfire Clubs were likely modeling themselves on the eye-raising, controversial rumors they'd heard. They sought to be more than drinking clubs or gambling dens. These new groups were all about dark, clandestine activities. Including murder. Up next, innocents die at Hellfire Club meetings. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the early 1700s, the young Duke, Philip of Wharton, founded the Hellfire Club in Dublin, Ireland. He didn't have any clear goals, except to sin as much as possible. And he inspired other rebels to enjoy wickedness for wickedness's sake. In 1735, the Earl of Ross, 33-year-old Richard Parsons, allegedly founded a chapter called the Irish Hellfire Club. This new branch was also based in Dublin and likely supplanted the defunct original chapter. Instead of meeting at a pub, Parsons Society gathered in a hunting lodge that belonged to William Connolly, a parliamentary speaker. From the beginning, the lodge represented a blend of the sacred and the profane. The structure had been built with stones from Neolithic burial sites, leading many locals to believe the Hellfire Club's lodge was haunted. In addition, sometime after the club's founding, an inexplicable hole opened in its roof. According to legend, it appeared after a minister snuck into one of the devil's meetings to find they were all worshipping a black cat. Surmising that the cat was possessed by the devil, the minister performed a rapid exorcism. 
Satan flew out of the cat's body with such force, he crashed through the ceiling, blowing a hole in the thatching. It's likely that the Earl of Ross encouraged rumors like this. He may have even started them himself. He loved the profane reputation the Hellfire Club had. In fact, Parsons was even more likely than the club's original founder to thumb his nose at religious authority. For example, one time he invited a priest to join him for dinner in his home. But when the clergyman arrived, Parsons opened the door completely nude. Without acknowledging his state of undress, he invited the priest to step inside. However, Parsons' shocking behavior paled in comparison to that of another devil, the infamously cruel Baron Henry Barry of Santry. According to rumor, the Baron employed a chairman who carried the seated Baron and his throne from location to location. But one day, the chairman claimed he was too sick to do his usual work. Barry responded by giving him a quart of brandy. It seemed like an odd gift to give to a sick man. But then the chairman realized he was being punished for his failure to do his duty. Baron forced his servant to finish the entire bottle in one sitting. Then, once the chairman finished drinking and passed out on his bed, Barry lit him on fire. The servant was too inebriated to douse the flames and died in the inferno. This story, if true, depicted more than a murder. It was a needlessly torturous and cruel death. And it wasn't the end of Barry's callous nature. Another similar account detailed a conflict that arose during a Hellfire Club meeting between Barry and another unnamed attendee. Although the stories don't detail what the attendee did, Barry felt so offended, he forced the other man to drink brandy until he vomited. Then, while the drunk man was incapacitated, the Baron burned him alive. Again, it's difficult to determine how much of the story is true. There's no record of a homicide investigation. It could be that the immolated servant and devil were both urban legends, especially given that the cause of death is so similar from one account to the next. Or perhaps the Baron had simply found a murder he liked, and he kept engaging in it. Records show that he was convicted of killing once, and this homicide also took place during a Hellfire Club meeting. We can't say exactly how the conflict began. It seems that another Hellfire Club member either got into an argument with Barry or, in some accounts, laughed at the Baron for unknown reasons. <laughs> in one version of the story, Barry responded by drawing his sword and stabbing the other man to death. Other conflicting accounts say that the Baron took out his murderous rage by fatally skewering an innocent, less well-connected bystander, a random tavern employee. Once he realized what he'd done, the Baron allegedly tried to bribe the other club members to keep quiet. But at least one witness couldn't be bought, and Barry was tried and found guilty of the murder. His punishment? 
Well, this was where money and connections came in handy. Before he could be sentenced, the Baron's influential uncle intervened, and he was pardoned of his crime. This story served as a reversal of the way secret societies typically functioned. Traditionally, intellectual elites fearing persecution found protection in their clandestine organizations. In this case, the Baron was betrayed by his fellow devils. Ironically, the group's decision to do the right thing led to its downfall. In 1745, the Baron's murder trial brought public attention to the Irish Hellfire Club and their debaucheries. The social disapproval made it more difficult for the group to attract members. In addition, many of the original founders were getting older. Binge drinking and gambling simply didn't have the same appeal. So the Irish Hellfire Club died out with hardly a sputter. Still, the group's reputation proved irresistible to other would-be rebels throughout Europe. Sister clubs flourished, even after the Baron of Santry's widely publicized murder trial. For example, a chapter in Norwich, England, was credited with a massive anti-Methodist riot. Both Oxford and Cambridge University were said to have their own chapters, although these claims have never been confirmed. Eventually, the Hellfire Club made its way to London. However, the branch's founder, Francis Dashwood, initially wanted to have nothing to do with the secret society. He did share their trollish tendency to flout authority, especially church authority. He became infamous for one particular prank. He once invited a local minister to explore the new gardens he'd installed at his estate. When the clergyman arrived, Dashwood walked him down the long, narrow pathways. The minister was too polite to comment on the garden's strange layout. He silently nodded at the twin red rose bushes surrounded by white flowers and the fountain nearly hidden under a thick, triangular, leafy bush. Dashwood seemed to sense that his garden was more confusing than beautiful. He explained, You must see the garden as a whole. I'll take you to the top of a tower so you can look down on it from a height. They trudged up several stories. As the men ascended, the minister was able to catch occasional glimpses out windows. The garden seemed to form a picture when viewed from above. But it wasn't until he reached the top of the tower that the holy man got the full effect. Cultivated flower patches outlined rounded hips and toned thighs. Colorful blooms formed puckered lips and flowing locks. The garden had been grown in the shape of a nude woman. A pair of fountains made it appear that milk was spurting from her nipples. The other fountain, disguised in a bush between her legs, simulated urination. The minister was so scandalized, he fainted at the sight. He could only be roused when Dashwood poured a mixture of brandy and sulfur down his throat. When the clergyman asked about the strange concoction, Dashwood told him it was a drink he'd invented, called brimstone. Another time, while traveling through Italy, Dashwood allegedly attended a Catholic mass while dressed in a long, dark cloak that was so large it disguised all of his features. He wore a coiled whip at his hip. 
Midway through the service, he rose from the pew and strode to the center of the church. Worshippers craned their necks to get a glimpse of the strange man hidden under the hood. He announced, you wish to do penitence? Good, I'll give you penitence. Take that and that and that. He punctuated his words with lashes of the whip. The devout people at the church believed that the devil had appeared amongst them. A panic ensued as Dashwood chased the frightened worshippers out of the sanctuary. He refused to leave until a group of brave Catholics physically wrestled him out to the street. But Dashwood's relationship with the church wasn't simply one of rebellion. Instead, he vacillated between devotion and blasphemy. He'd publicly mock devout Catholics, only to be moved to tears while praying in private. Dashwood wanted to have a relationship with God, but he also wanted to drink, have anonymous sex, and seek out hedonistic pleasures without condemnation. If he'd been born in the 21st century, he might have considered himself spiritual but not religious. But during the era of enlightenment, he felt trapped between two dominant communities, organized religions, pious worshipers, or atheistic philosophers and scientists. He didn't totally fit either label. For a man like Dashwood, secret societies offered a valuable way to keep a foot in both worlds. He could embrace the scientific theories that were becoming more popular in his time while still getting the ceremony and spiritualism that he craved. Additionally, these societies probably gave him feelings of social acceptance. He dabbled in such organizations throughout his youth, but he found most secret societies to be frivolous and sophomoric. For example, he briefly ran with a London group called the Mohawks, but grew bored when he discovered that they did little more than assault random passers-by on the streets. Likewise, he could muster little passion for the Blasters, a society for flashers. In fact, nearly all of the organizations he'd previously considered seemed to mostly engage in childish pranks or random harassment. So when he was in his early 30s, he decided to form his own secret society, a group of like-minded men who wanted to worship God without condemning pleasures like alcohol and sex. Given that most people of his time would assume the hedonistic blend of pleasure and piety was blasphemous, they would practice in secret. The group served another key purpose. It helped Dashwood overcome his own insecurities. He was the wealthy son of merchants, meaning he had the resources to mix with landed nobles, but he never truly fit in to their high society. But a secret society would be even more elite and even more exclusive than the aristocracy. It would give Dashwood an opportunity to reject the same rich snobs who had shunned him in the past. He originally dubbed his organization the Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham. Records no longer exist detailing how often the society met, but we do know where they gathered, London's Georgian Vulture Pub. This bar was a favorite for secret societies. In fact, before Dashwood even started recruiting members, the George and Vulture Pub had already hosted several gatherings of the London chapter of the Hellfire Club. Dashwood wanted nothing to do with the devils. 
He considered them low-class, childish, and imbecilic. But all of the secrecy around the Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham worked against him. When the public couldn't determine what his secret society did, they confused it with the Hellfire Club, even after the latter quietly died out. Officially, the Order was never a Hellfire Club chapter. It never changed its name, and Dashwood never agreed to merge the groups. But other friars weren't so picky about labels, and soon they referred to themselves as devils. Most historians today call the friars a Hellfire Club, in spite of Dashwood's objections. But unlike previous devils, like Duke Philip of Wharton or Richard Parsons, Dashwood had ambition. He was going to transform the Hellfire Club from a collection of drunks and gamblers into a secret society with the power and influence to change the world. Next, we'll look at the earliest members of the London Hellfire Club and how they made history. Now, back to the story. In 1745, less than three decades after the Hellfire Club had been founded in Dublin, the secret society disbanded. But in its absence, countless sister branches appeared throughout Europe. The most notable of these was London's Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wickham. Although this chapter wasn't technically a Hellfire Club, it nevertheless gained prominence in the 1740s, thanks to its 30-something leader, Francis Dashwood. And soon, everyone believed Dashwood's group were the original devils. Initially, membership was strictly by invite. At any time, just 12 men were allowed to belong. And only men. Dashwood had no interest in perpetuating the original organization's gender egalitarianism. They each used code names corresponding to the 12 Apostles of Jesus. As the head of the organization, Dashwood answered to Christ. He only recruited trusted friends and colleagues, mostly high-ranking men who'd shared a similar disdain for traditional demonstrations of piety. Men like John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich. The nobleman was orphaned as a child and had been ruling his earldom since the tender age of 10. As an adult, he'd entered England's political system, serving as an international diplomat and attaining the rank of second colonel. He also enjoyed dishonorable hobbies like drinking and gambling. According to urban legend, he once got so caught up in a game of cards that he refused to leave the table, even after hours of gameplay. His servants brought him bread and meat, fearing he'd otherwise grow faint from hunger. Montague wasn't even willing to put down his hand long enough to cut up and eat his food. So he lifted the meat using two slices of bread, thus inventing his eponymous food staple, the sandwich. Other original devils included Francis Duffield, the physician to the Prince of Wales, and Oxford University's Robert Van Sittert. Even at only a dozen strong, the London Hellfire Club was poised to be one of the most powerful secret societies in Britain. These men were all influential, powerful, and rich. They held positions in government and wrote treatises that shaped the thoughts of the common people. Behind closed doors, they drank and caroused and discussed the merits of democracy or new tax plans. 
But Dashwood wasn't content to merely gather wealthy and powerful friends around himself. He wanted to prove to the world that he and his club could be just as influential as any nobleman. Rather than pulling the strings from the shadows, his friars would advertise their arcane activities to the world. To accomplish this, he needed more than 12 members. But that would require more space than the Georgian Vulture Tavern could provide. So in 1751, another member, Francis Duffield, granted 43-year-old Dashwood permission to renovate his property and abandoned Cetertian Abbey in London called Medmedim. This location was the perfect encapsulation of everything Dashwood wanted his society to be. The desanctified cloister embodied both worship and the decline of the church. And to add to the spooky ambiance, Dashwood had massive tunnels built under the structure so his devils could secretly meet underground. The construction took years, and Dashwood became popular with locals, thanks to the well-paying excavation jobs he was always looking to fill. He compensated them well enough that his employees didn't even mind the fact that they were sworn to secrecy before they could begin the work. His generous wages proved worth it. The final Hellfire Club headquarters were massive and beautiful. He hung a new motto over the Medmenum's front entrance, Face Gavuldra, which translates to Do What Thou Wilt. It was a major shift from more traditional religious teachings that people should do God's will. A person passing through the entrance would soon find themselves wandering a maze-like series of winding tunnels, alcoves, and dead ends. Today, historians aren't entirely clear why the Hellfire Caves were laid out this way. Perhaps the construction crews followed the path of natural caverns or existing chalk mines. Some rumors suggest that the layout had symbolic meaning, or that the caves formed a picture when viewed from above, much like Dashwood's nude woman-shaped garden. Perhaps they were designed to be intentionally confusing, so prying eyes couldn't stumble upon Hellfire Club gatherings. The most remote and well-protected region of the caves was the Inner Temple, located about a quarter mile from the entrance and 300 feet directly under the Abbey Sanctuary. A natural stream separated the Inner Temple from the rest of the cave system. It's said that only the 12 original members were permitted to take boats across to this sacred location. In addition, an underground chapel featured stained glass windows and statues, all depicting the 12 founding members committing indecent and pornographic acts. In another alcove, a library was stocked with one of the most expansive porn collections of the time, while a wine cellar held an unimaginable collection of vintages. Latin inscriptions decorated the walls and the estates above ground. Some included puns or profane messages. Others didn't translate into English at all. Outside the chapels stood altars and statues of Egyptian and Roman gods. The Hellfire Club was equally happy to blaspheme any deity from any religion. If Dashwood ever held any gods in reverence, they were Bacchus, the Roman god of wine, and Venus, the goddess of lust and sex. According to rumor, Dashwood hosted several ceremonies in which he sacrificed to Bacchus and Venus. 
Again, given everything we know about Dashwood's personality, it's unlikely that he actually believed in the divinity of these ancient Roman gods. If anything, the ceremonies were meant to be one more perversion of Christian religion, a way to mock Catholic custom by warping it into something venal or idolatrous. The intensity of Dashwood's hatred of the Catholic faith set him apart from other more traditional devils. Nearly everything he did, whether in public or private, was carefully crafted to demonstrate his disdain. Unlike the simple drinking organization the Hellfire Club had once been, Dashwood wanted his secret society to attract only the world's most well-connected and established men. The group actively recruited once it moved from the small pub to the spacious caverns. New members included Sir Thomas Stapleton of the Greys, an influential political family. There was also Lord Malcolm Regis, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and John Wilkes, a member of Parliament. Each of these newcomers had to perform the Hellfire Club's initiation ceremonies, which often featured warped takes on more traditional religious practices. No records exist of what those ceremonies actually entailed. Only initiates and members could attend. They probably took place at Medmenham's Chapel early in the morning, after the previous night's party had wound down and the guests had left. We do know a little about their new member selection process. The existing leaders, including Dashwood, would invite a pair of potential initiates into the chapel. There, each man would give a speech, arguing for why he was superior to his competitor. The democratic trappings didn't stop with the debate. The existing inner circle would hold a vote, choosing who would be permitted to join them. Whoever got the most votes was welcomed with open arms. The addition of more members brought even wilder gatherings. Medmenham hosted exuberant parties and orgies, which other Hellfire chapters could never have imagined. It's also said that sex workers were invited to dress in nuns' habits for the get-togethers. Devils in monks' robes would sip wine from the sex workers' navels or knock back pints of brimstone, Dashwood's signature cocktail of brandy mixed with sulfur. Many Hellfire Club gatherings boasted stage shows in which female guests would perform sex acts on one another while devils cheered on the proceedings. In spite of the hedonism and presence of sex workers, Hellfire Club meetings promoted an odd sort of monogamy. Members were encouraged to select a single female partner to spend the evening with. Men who tried to flirt with another member's partner were shamed or shunned. And that's just what we know about for sure. Just like the original Hellfire Club, Dashwood's organization inspired several dark rumors suggesting more arcane activities. For example, one member, writing under the pen name Morlock, wrote to an acquaintance claiming the club performed satanic black masses and sacrificed virgins to the devil. But there's no evidence anything like this actually occurred. If anything, those rumors were more likely to be a bit of crude wordplay. Given the Hellfire Club's celebration of anonymous sex, it's more likely that the virgins were only sacrificed insofar as they were no longer virgins after they left the party. Morlock, whoever he was, was probably just trying to shock or scandalize the letter's recipient. And he wasn't the only one. 
Dashwood loved to break taboos whenever possible. Sexual propriety? He invited noble women to attend the parties naked, where they were encouraged to have sex with the devils. Moderation? Members were encouraged to drink a minimum of three or four bottles of wine each night. They were granted nicknames based on their limits. A monk might be dubbed a three-bottle man based on his chugging ability. Incest? Dashwood frequently selected his stepmother, Mary Dashwood, as a partner for Hellfire Club orgies. He made a point of informing his guests of their relationship. Although he wasn't biologically related to Mary, Dashwood still caused quite the scandal and enjoyed every moment of it. In essence, Francis Dashwood and the Hellfire Club were 18th century trolls. They existed solely to upset people and attract attention. The club kept its membership secret to protect them from social fallout, but otherwise advertised its own debauchery in order to make a point. They wouldn't adhere to traditional expectations, and they couldn't be shamed into behaving. Their most important function of all, though, was to prove they didn't care about fitting into society. The Hellfire Club was the perfect encapsulation of Dashwood's insecurities. It was his way of saying that he had no problem being an outsider among landed noblemen. He liked it better on the outside. And society's elites loved being there with him. American founding father Benjamin Franklin was said to be a frequent guest at Hellfire parties. Other rumored devils included members of parliament, artists, and lords. Officially, the Hellfire Club was strictly about the parties and the fun, but Dashwood was so selective about his members, he seemed to be working towards something bigger, something dangerous, something that would change the course of English history forever. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday to explore how Dashwood's Hellfire Club increased its power and reach and changed the world. For more information on the Hellfire Club, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Hellfire Clubs by Evelyn Lord extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.